This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. Getting hearing aids is no picnic. It's expensive, confusing, time-consuming, right? Actually, no. With the Jabra Enhance Select and Premium Package, you can get state-of-the-art hearing aids and professional care without the hassle. Jabra Enhance offers advanced rechargeable hearing aids delivered to your door for thousands less than you'd expect. No offices, no waiting rooms. Just take the online hearing test to personalize your hearing aids. Enjoy speech clarity, noise reduction, and hearing technology that adapts to your unique sound environments. And the audiology team can provide adjustments to your hearing aids remotely on request for three years. And the best part? You'll likely pay thousands less than if you went to a traditional audiologist. And now for a limited time, save $200 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to jabraenhance.com and enter promo code PODCAST to save. jabraenhance.com code PODCAST. For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is June the 2nd in 2022, and my guest is Bart De Witte. Bart is the founder of Hippo AI, a nonprofit that fights for making medical knowledge openly available and AI-based healthcare a common good. Bart has spent 20 plus years working for global technology companies and is now one of the most influential thinkers of the digital health era. Bart and I will have a wide-ranging conversation about healthcare technology, AI, regulation, and open innovation. If you're an aspiring or actual founder of a technology company in healthcare, or an investor or innovator in the field, listen up. To define the future of healthcare, I invite you to join us for a conference on the beautiful Caribbean island of Roatan in the country of Honduras on September 23 to 25. Go to infinitafund.com to sign up. I hope to see you there. Over to you, Bart. Bart, what is the problem you're trying to solve with Hippo AI and as a public intellectual? Yeah, the problem I want to solve is that um, we uh, avoid information asymmetries um, um, as a very simple concept. Um, Information asymmetries is that what leads to inequalities. And I think we, um, uh, the problem that I want to solve is that we create abundance when it comes to uh, the availability of life-saving information. And we shift uh, the economy in healthcare towards a different path uh, where we create value based on experience and really go away from that scarcity mindset that um, leads to inequality, something we have witnessed during COVID when we were talking about our second booster uh, 5% of Africa uh, didn't even have a vaccine. Um, or 5% just had a vaccine, but 95% didn't even have access. So I think we need to change this. Um, um, and, and I think if everything gets digitized um, and, and data is the source uh, where we get the extractions, which leads to uh, knowledge creation uh, and, and, and leads to innovation, that we need to see that that source uh, is endlessly available in abundance and is not fenced by walls that um, lead again to the same system we've always been uh, setting up, which um, 
defines then where you are born and raised. Uh, if you're going to get 60 years old or 19 years old. So the problem is uh, inequality or inequity or lack of access to healthcare, right? Okay. Sort of, it depends on where you're born. One of the ways in which sort of that access will, or that value will be created um, to people is through data. Data is kind of where you see as the key lever yeah, to solve the data problems. is, is uh, as, as a lot of people probably agree, there are very different kinds of data in healthcare, of course. Uh, but data is going to be key for um, all sorts of innovation. Even to put that innovation in practice, we, we saw that during the uh, clinical trials of the mRNA vaccines that Israel had huge access to data that accelerated the clinical trial process. So data is quite important, not only for discovery, but also for the implementation. So, And, and there are many people who want to increase the value of data in terms of economical value. Um, and earn money with that. And I will post that to you. How do you want to solve the problem? What's your approach well, as um, a foundation? This is a very complex and hard problem to solve um, um, because it, we have been discussing 15 years in Germany for a health record. <laughs> we still don't have a national health record. And, and that's all about sharing data. So nobody <laughs> wants to share data, but um, data is still shared, but it has a price. Um, and the way I want to solve it is really to, um, and that sounds a bit strange, is not first through technology, but really at the beginning, initially creating a, a narrative and a vision that we all work and collab can collaborate on. And I think that is missing. The electronic health record is not a vision, it's not an mm. end destination, it's not purpose, it is a tool. But what do we want to achieve with these tools? And I think nobody has really formulated that what we want to achieve. And that's where I started, was like um, narratives, uh, because a narrative makes us um, fight with each other. There's some people who believe in Jesus, others believe in Mohammed, and they go and kill each other. And that's a narrative. And I think um, if we create narratives that allow us to collaborate because we have a joint vision that we want to uh, work on together, then, then this is re a really important step. And then, and there, there are so many technologies out there in the last 20 years that I've seen where everybody was promising that data would be shared and there would be a, a, a data flow and, and there would be a health record. We, we as patients would get access. Well, these were all empty promises. And I've seen all these technologies being implemented and billions of dollars being invested. And we still don't have that system. So I really focused on what, why doesn't this happen? And, and I think it's really because of that failed narrative. And healthcare for me is a, is a bit like Game of Thrones. It's um, full of kingdoms and, um, and these kingdoms want to keep as much for themselves. Uh, and what I try to do with the narrative is creating a democracy in, in, a, in a world of kingdoms. Um, and, and I think that is how the approach that I selected is really bottom-up democracy. And, and um, the way how to do this is that we um, use the uh, right for inform informational self-determination so that we means that we as patients always have to give consent even if you use an app or an application you give consent for them to process your data um, and we can do it the same way we can uh, by campaigning asking people to give consent and by these means we get data and we don't get that directly from them, but we get that from institutions. And then we pull the data together. Um, 
we cleans, we use the money for the foundation to build large data sets, all, mostly based on a, a disease at the moment. We are focusing on breast cancer. And then we do something tricky because I don't want to just create open data and build a new kingdom. <laughs> I, I'm not interested in kingdoms. Um, so we want to create that data as open as possible. So I don't want to be a gatekeeper, but we define rules for that data. So we have a license model that is a copyleft license that says like, well, you are free to use our data. You can do and commercialize products uh, when you use that data. But there was one trick here, but all the derivatives and extractions and AI models um, trained on our data needs to be open source. So we are connecting open source database licenses with open source software licenses, which there is no, and, and if someone is listening, that say like, well, there is a license model. Um, I, we didn't find any of the existing license model that exists. And I really would like to create if commons or others to take over that concept, because I'm not really interested in governing a license, but that's how we want to do it. So we are testing this. Um, and then we work with global communities, incentivize, and then create what we call global AI models that have that license that are then the basis for sharing. And then you can use uh, federated learning or other technologies, but you're creating what, what we call then radical open ecosystems, which are based on sharing. I love that vision. I also like how you said democracy in a world of kingdoms. Um, I also share that vision very much. I think it goes very much to the heart of um, what innovation is. Like um, the author Matt Ridley once said, innovation yeah. is ideas having sex. If these ideas, the abstract concepts and the data is not openly available, there's fewer people that can copy and edit these ideas and abstract concepts, right? This way, less innovation is happening. So I would very much also like to see kind of a more open innovation system. To give a bit more meat to the bones, in a, in a post on LinkedIn recently, you talked about the Human Genome Project as a great example of that world. Can you talk a bit more about that and why it's such a good example yeah, for kind of what we want like to see? That post I mentioned that there was now a company promising, we have to see if they can deliver on that promise, that they will um, uh, create or deliver a technology that allows us to do a full human genome sequencing for as much as $100. Now, if you know that 20 years ago, and probably most uh, people know that, that uh, to sequence that genome, you, you, you needed $2 billion. That was the first human genome project. It, it costed billions to create that first human sequence genome data set. Um, and there was a, an open source collaboration um, where um, 14 countries and 24 research institutes collaborating and they had uh, principles and these principles were, for example, every single day they uploaded their results uh, in a shared environment uh, and they were sharing everything. Like there was a kind of a, a huge open source collaboration, which was at the end of the 90s. So the tools were a bit different. Um, but then in parallel, there was a company, a biotech, who was doing the same, but he was patenting the human genome. So it's like, well, you guys can do this open source, but um, I want to earn money with this. Um, and I'm going to patent the human genome. And there was a person um, called John, John Stolston in that human genome project. They used 10% of that project, the budget, they used 10% for ethics, which is something nobody in a private um, uh, research project would do to 
really focused on using 10%. And they were so good in formulating why we should not patent it, that um, it led to the situation that Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, which are not these persons that we know for being very um, yeah, social in their policies, especially uh, Tony Blair, but uh, they managed to agree that the human genome is not patentable. And um, they had a huge press announcement in 2001 uh, where they said, like, the human genome needs to be used for the common good for the people so we can all profit and, and we can advance society. Now, I claim, and there are some papers there, that by uh, making this a common good, um, that this is the only reason why it created a $1 trillion output, because it, it opened up the, the building blocks for others to work on, and now it led to the creation of a company that had 600 million investments, um, is now um, achieved that, that the price for sequencing went down to $100, because everybody could access that human genome and it was not patented. You didn't have to pay a license every time you did a project, and it created competition and a healthy market system. By doing and opening it up, I think that's the way how you can also look at data. You will create a huge economical growth because a lot of people can access that. And I think access these building blocks allows you then to build things. And, 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 and I think we need to re-achieve this when it comes to health data. Um, and, and, and not thinking that by owning data and selling data, that this is going to be the business model because it, it is going to slow us down. It is going to create inequalities and it's not going to lead to that huge uh, progress we have seen in the biotechnology or bioinformatics um, industry where, where exponentials, like everybody knows Moore's Law, the price of compute went down, the price of data storage went down, um, everything went down and the price of sequencing went exponentially down. And, and I think when you look at pharma and healthcare, there is something what is called Erum's law, which is more slow spelled the other way around, uh, which says that prices of, of, of therapeutics go exponentially up without even the performance, like in price, without the performance going exponentially up. And I think that is due to the case that we close everything up and we don't see enough um, uh, open innovation and, and, and competition. Let me double-click a bit yeah, on that. I, I yeah. sometimes simplify this, but this is not really a correct answer or simplification, but simplification is what you can help us do to understand uh, things. And I said, like, imagine you would consolidate all health data of all humans into 26 uh, letters, and you would call it alphabet, and you would patent the alphabet. And then you ask, are we going to create more uh, uh, printing companies um, 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 uh, how do you call it, publishers? Are people going to read more books? <laughs> Are people going to write more books? Because every time I use the letter L, I have to pay for licenses. That doesn't make any sense. And if you look at the, the future of healthcare, this is about a language which is based on four letters, which is the genetic language, the sequences. And I think we should look at it in the same way as the alphabet and open this up so people can write books of life and create and innovate. And as you said, like have sex and innovate. Ideas, yeah. Um, people can have yeah. sex too. <laughs>
I couldn't agree more. I <laughs> I agree that IP law oh, it seems to me a big problem in that story, right? So, um, you know, we were working on one of the most important discoveries or technologies um, that we probably experienced in our lifetime. And we fortunately created huge economic value by having it open. But once, uh, but, but it was threatened by people who wanted to use patent law against that project and that needed kind of political intervention to prevent that. Is that a common story, right? Is that happening? Is that the reason that other innovations where that political innovation didn't happen is kind of undermined? Is that something that you've, that you've seen or experienced? There is a lot of uh, misconception uh, about opening things up uh, because um, A, policies are mostly focusing on legislation periods, which go four years or five years. So politicians don't interest, are not interested in what happens in 10 years. Uh, we see this with climate discussions, which how, how hard it is to think in, in, in 10 to 20 year cycles. Um, so it was quite unique that um, they managed to get the human genome open source. Um, the other big invention, which I call, which was open source, is the internet. Like there was the open philosophy of the internet came out of open source. We had uh, the TCP IP protocol, which was an open source protocol, HTTP protocols, everything was open source. And even the, the web servers that allow us to build the internet in a decentralized mode ran on Linux, <laughs> which was open source. I, I, I claim that without open source, there would be no internet. Mm -hmm. Like it would not have scaled. Everybody could start an internet provider service and, and start hosting um, um, an IP server and and, 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 and connecting this um, and, and earning money with this. So um, we have seen this with the internet. We have seen this with the human genome, but with the internet, it was actually an accident because the internet was created by the uh, government. Uh, uh, it was designed for when there would be a nuclear war that we still could be able to communicate. That's why... It was decentralized, um, uh, but it was an accident that they opened it up. I don't think there was any strategy behind it to think this is going to advance society because there are so many politicians now to try to control again mm -hmm. um, uh, that that freedom and, and and real democracy in terms of communication and and and, and connection. So, um, my point was that in that story, um, and there's probably many stories we don't see. The problem could have been what could have undermined the human genome project is okay. um, patent law, right? So, or generally, IP law seems to me, or that would be my theory, is the problem, right? I've, you know, most people think IP law is necessary. I've read a very interesting book that's available open source. It's called Against Intellectual Monopoly by Michelle Boldrun and Daniel um, or David Levine. And that really quite convinced me that IP law is not a good idea on a first principles basis. Now, most IP lawyers or legal scholars think IP law is necessary, but they probably agree, or most of them agree that it's gotten out of hand, right? Especially when it comes to patent and copyrights, less so trademarks. And these are three very different concepts. So um, I wanted to know, is it more common or have you seen cases where IP law, patents and copyright especially, 
have been sort of undermining or used against innovation, like by big companies, for example. Well, there's a, a huge dimension that we're opening up now in that sense. There, is, there are different uh, parts in that, like there's IP law, there are patterns, there is trade secrets. I think the trade secrets are even are more uh, challenging, um, especially when you connect it to, to AI in itself. And yes, uh, it got out of hand. I call IP law is more innovative than the innovators itself. And... <laughs> If, if, if they get more innovative in creating constructions that don't allow us to get access, we need to really think if that really is what the goal was about IP law, um, because it, more, it sounds more a bit like a colonial way of grabbing things and not giving access anymore and, and getting, if, if, you, if you would visualize digitalization as a, as a, a digital territory that we need, that we are battling for territory, it seems that IP and these tools allow you to, to grab more territory in that sense and protect it, just like we had it with property law rights in, in that sense, uh, in, in land, land property rights. Um, but I think there is this kind of always what people tell me, we need IP so people will invest. Um, and, and otherwise, we, we disincentivize uh, people to work on things. And I, and I, and I oppose this because we have seen amazing innovations or advancements in, in open source software. Um, and uh, the largest companies um, like Facebook and Meta, uh, Meta from Facebook and, and Google and Amazon and IBM and, and the, so the larger tech companies, they are the biggest contributors in open source. Um, and with contribution, I mean really contribution. They, they, they give things away. They have developers that work and and complement uh, the open source uh, developments. Um, and I see open, that open world more as, as, as a shared R&D process where uh, companies are sharing their resources because they know that to get standardized technologies that people all have to use together, um, it makes more sense to do that together in an open source way as to first everybody starts developing their proprietary software for a lot of money and then making it interoperable with each other, which doesn't make any sense. Um, so they, they learned how to do this. And now you have commercial open source software companies uh, in, a, in a software as a service model that are 100% open source from the very beginning. So there are startups now receiving 3 million, 5 million uh, seed funds where actually everything what they did is already on GitHub um, and open source, and they're still getting investment. So that that view that you don't get investments when you don't have patterns and you don't open is is, is not correct. Um, and that that other view is that um, people will not contribute because they don't get paid is also not correct uh, because there's so much things that have been done. Um, so um, there are things though that I think that need to be protected like they're, they're, like if if you need 14 or if you need six years for clinical trials and, and that's a very costly thing to do and you have all these regulations then yes you need to be able to protect that in a certain sense but we could also do the opposite and question if we not have to work on the regulations itself to simplify it. um, so <laughs> so we don't can bring the costs down, but I sometimes feel that larger companies want it to be complex, so they are the only ones who can comply with that regulatory 
framework. I agree, very difficult. Um, in any case, what I see is that these are two different ways the, um, where companies get kind of a government granted monopoly, right? One in the case of regulation when it comes to testing and clinical trials, right? When you are the one that successfully um, got the trial and approved the drug, you know you can sell the drug without competition for like six to 10 years. And you can see very clearly until the next competitor is coming. And similar in IP law, especially with patents and copyrights, you can kind of claim a first use of an idea, right? So I had that idea first. I don't know. I saw the human genome first <laughs> and, you know, you can't use it anymore, which if you think about it is actually kind of a crazy idea or it's the deeply flawed idea, not a crazy idea. Let's open that debate up to people who want to challenge our view in that case. But is an idea property? That seems a bit strange, right? Is an idea something that you that is the same like your body or a t-shirt that you own or you know your house? It's it kind of seems very different. And an example is like imagine you're uh, in economics, like I studied economics, and you've developed the idea of the supply and demand curve, right? You know, do you own that idea? Can you not allow other universities to use that idea and teach it to others, right? <laughs> and also, what do you get paid for? People don't pay you for that idea. People pay you for teaching that idea, right? So there's kind of this flawed concept that it's the idea that has value or the idea that it's kind of a property that you can claim. So that like 10 years for IBM and IBM was in total of the number of uh, patterns, uh, the world leader, um, but there is this internal program for IBM employees is that if somebody has an ID, we have to write it down and then, <laughs> and then you can uh, claim um, um, uh, the pattern and you are an innovator. So there is this incentive system within IBM to let everybody share or think about ideas and how to do that, to do that, even though they never have developed an end product, but it's important to describe your ID um, and then claim that pattern. Um, I, I think it's not so black and white as you describe, but I think, yes, really have to watch out how far you go with um, um, protecting things. Like if you have an organization pushing for all employees to have ideas and write them down so you can have a catalog of patterns and then claim you have all these patterns while it's never been your core um, um, focus in, as a company, then, then this is nonsense. Like that this is, is kind of abusing that system. Uh, but if you then look at the war that happened between Samsung and, and Apple on the phone basis, then it was patterns kind of, it was a huge pattern battle. Huh? And, and, and as you mentioned, like patterns are used by large companies to defend their territory. <laughs> um, and if you look at it that way, that it is only serving the larger companies to, it is only serving them to kind of protect what they have. Um, and then you, you have a very different view as um, that the original idea is about the innovator that is really creative and has an idea that he wants to protect. So when he approaches a company um, and wants to sell his idea, that he gets money for it. That, that is not the case anymore. If you know that case, there was a TerraVision was a startup here in Berlin, um, and that was um, beginning of the century. Like um, they they created um, um, a new a model to use satellite images, and then zooming with a very fluent rendering system, and 
and it was demonstrated on the World Expo on the German stand, and it was actually Google Earth. So they had um, used satellite imaging and then 3D rendering tools to um, so you could zoom in uh, from the globe and then zoom in on the street level. And, and they patented that way, the methods, how to do this. And uh, what actually happened is that uh, they were a bit like there was no venture capital at the time in, in Germany. They worked with the Deutsche Telekom. They, they used a, a supercomputer um, that they got uh, financed by Deutsche Telekom. But Deutsche Telekom didn't understand what the potential would be for such a solution. And then they went to the, uh, the US and, and talked to the guys from that, uh, the brand of that supercomputer that they uh, bought. There was, I think it was Silicon Graphics, it was uh, the computer company. And uh, the, um, the person from Silicon Graphics questioned them so hard that the developer was so naive to tell how they actually solved the problem in, in the rendering technology, which was, which was quite complex. <laughs> and then the guy from Graphics uh, copied that <laughs> and then sold that innovation to Google. And that's how Google Earth was created. And it was actually a copy. And then it was um, they, they, the German startup, um, TerraVision, went and later they, they had conversations with Google because they said, hey, we have a patent on this. They had, I think, years conversations with Google. And then suddenly Google didn't answer on their um, emails anymore, and they went for a lawsuit. Um, and although they had the patent, first, A, they could not um, 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 check because you, you, cannot, uh, you cannot dive into the code and the algorithm if they really used the methods. So Google claimed they used other methods, and, uh, which was definitely not the case in that sense. Uh, and there was an, later an audit. Uh, they used the same methods. But then what Google did is they founded a research paper of somebody who wrote from Stanford uh, already prior to them having the patent, something similar in a paper, which was not the same method, but it was something similar. And then they said, like, well, it was public knowledge anyway. So they lost the lawsuit, um, TerraVision against Google. And... and of course, Google came with an army of lawyers, and then, yeah, it's quite difficult to, to win these kind of cases. I want to give a different example from sort of the world of startups and VC. So a very easy test to see um, if someone is an amateur or not is, you know, when in, in our culture, when someone says, I don't want to tell you my idea, right, because I'm going to afraid, I'm afraid you're just going to steal it from me. That's a sure-proof way to spot an amateur. Why? Because, you know, in the startup world, we know that ideas are cheap, right? So every, every VC that's larger probably sees 10 different companies that are working on the same idea that often don't know of each other, right? That means there's probably hundreds out there who have the same idea, but just didn't do it. Right. So, you know, the idea that the idea is something that you can patent is kind of strange. Right. So imagine you have kind of a hundred people that have the same idea. You have one person that knows very well how to use patent law to kind of get ahead in that competition. Right. And this is kind of um, kind of a very it, it's creating an incentive to know patent law very well to to benefit yourself instead of what was the original idea kind of to protect the, the inventor or the ideator, right? 
definitely. And I think there is um, um, next to patterns, there is also the IP on, for example, databases. And um, I, I wrote in my newsletter last week, um, I, I attacked a bit one of the VC venture builders here in Berlin because they published a, a paper uh, or an article online where they said, like, why it's important to create IP on your algorithm. Um, and in that whole article of that VC venture builder, it was never written that it was important to become a successful company <laughs> or to be successful in your strategy. There was nothing written about how IP is going to make you successful. It was only written in that sense that in our assets that you can then evaluate. That reminds me that um, most of the uh, VCs are like not all of them, but a lot of the VCs they have this mindset of creating as much assets as possible, but they or have failure in mind because when that startup goes bankrupt, they still can evaluate these assets and sell them, um, which is the database license or the the AI model in itself. So there are, there are assets to sell, or B, um, they just want an exit after three years and they're not interested. Um, in, in, in the, the overall success, which is mostly the case here um, in Berlin. There, there are, most of the VCs don't play with their own money. They play by the book with other people's money, and then they try to reduce the risks, uh, mitigate the risk as much as possible. What you see now and what you witness is that a lot of startups in the AI space are actually spin-offs of hospitals or that take a data set out of the hospital, which is really valuable, and they spin it out, they put some kind of um, algorithm method on it and create a user interface around it, and then um, they sell it. <laughs> and, and, and so that's kind of using a, a data set out of the, of the hospital, uh, making that an asset and then selling that asset. So that is more a bit, that, that has nothing to do with innovation mm -hmm. for me with startups. It's almost like reverse or the other way around. Sort of the original idea of patent law was so the inventor is protected so others can't steal their idea. But it's kind of the other way around. It's used by others to kind of steal someone else's idea and make it put it kind of in a silo. And I agree with that. I mean, I want to put that strong opinion out there because, you know, I'm setting up a VC fund and I think it's immoral to use IP law to claim territory away from others. You might in some areas be forced to patent your idea or intellectual property for defensive purposes, right? You know, because some of the big companies and patent lawyers are using it against you, right? But I just want to put that, put that opinion out there that I find it immoral to use it for other than defensive purposes. And from a moral perspective, physicians, they don't like things to, to be closed that they cannot peer review, that they cannot even look into the training data that was used to train that model. And, and that is so crazy that people think that they will become successful going into healthcare with a tool that is a black box, not a, not a, a technical black box, because yes, AI has that technical black box problem, but mostly you can even not approach the technical black box because there is a legal black box around the technical black box. It doesn't even allow you to go into the technical black box. Um, so, um, and then they think they can that, that they will these physicians will interact, and interaction is based on the currency of trust. And and a physician will never trust a system which he cannot 
scrutinize scientifically uh, to see how that was strained, what kind of data that is. And there is one thing that you cannot copy or patterns or buy, and that is trust. And if you don't are able as a company, as a startup, to build trust, you will not scale. You, you see all these failures of startups because they, they are not trusted within the physician community. And then you have even worse PCs going on stage telling that they will replace the doctors by um, AI solutions. Okay, that's not really a trust-building um, um, way to go forward. And I think that there is this huge misunderstanding that um, we need to copy business models and morals out of banking where I'm okay with neobanks uh, using these models in a, in a certain sense and then start applying this into healthcare, which is a very different, this is healthcare is not banking, healthcare is not real estate. Um, healthcare is about human lives and there is, there is so much morals in healthcare that have been built up over the last 2000 years that I've, I'm, a lot of these entrepreneurs don't really understand. Yeah, that's a good segue into a discussion I'd like to have with you about ethics. So what um, is the ethics of Hippocrates and what do you emulate for your own personal ethics or professional ethics? And what is an abundance mindset? Yeah, well, ethics, I, I went before I started my HippoI Foundation, I, I did quite a lot of research and readings. And there are quite a lot of um, different things that came together. At first, I, I read quite a lot on Hippocrates, um, who was actually the godfather of um, the ethical framework for uh, medicine. So he, in the original ode, he wrote that physicians are not allowed to uh, economize uh, their knowledge and they should always share it for free with their peers. So it was kind of an open source mindset um, in that original ode. Um, and that open access, because in science you call this open access, um, mindset led them to the creation of other open sciences in the 16th, 17th century, when we got the enlightenment. Um, then the sciences of medicine actually were kind of the basis for other sciences, and that philosophy and ethical mindset that you publish your knowledge openly in journals or in papers and share that, um, came out of the medical field. Um, and, and open access is something that is very ethical to advance society. Um, and, and, and that's ethics. Like closing and building up walls is not ethical. Like if you look today how a few publisher companies have built walls around um, publications that were funded with tax, tax dollars or euros, uh, we're written by scientists who never got paid for writing it, and we're peer-reviewed by others who were not paid for it. But then there are companies that are telling, hey, I have this brand called whatever nature or whatever it's, I don't want nature is the night, I, I like to read nature, but like there are different brands out there, and it's like, if you want to get published, you need to do this with our brand. And then they ask $40 for uh, getting access. And that means if you ask $40 for accessing that paper, that you exclude all researchers in low and middle income countries to access that knowledge. Um, so you kind of defend and build a wall in the Western worlds or in the richer countries to allow others not to access that thing. Because these universities in the countries 
cannot afford it. So it was no surprise at all that the InnoSci Hub, which was an illegal uh, website that where you can download all the PDFs and research illegally, uh, came out of Kazakhstan because these researchers could not afford uh, to even get access. So that is already the, the main framework for where my foundation is going to is like, it is, I don't think it's ethical um, um, to have public funded research and closing that down, nor is it ethical to have data that is extracted out of our human bodies to do that in the same way that you give others access to the data uh, that want to do research and others don't, depending on how much you can afford and, and pay. I don't think everything yeah. that we know, what you know and what researchers know is based on the knowledge of others. Like the sense that you are the innovator is completely nonsense <laughs> because you always have learned from others and you were, you were only to be able to get that far because you had access, um, access to knowledge. And, and, and that is one of the main um, um, ethical frame, like parts that we, we, we use uh, for the Baha'i Foundation. Next to, of course, um, the, the part of the ethical frameworks that are out there in terms of um, the data should not be biased um, and should not be discriminatory. So um, we want to build up global data sets with, which are biodiverse. Yeah, I'd actually like to challenge you a bit on the idea of ownership of data. What it seems to me that you're saying is that data about ourselves is something that we own, kind of that's extracted from our body, right? Extracted out of our body. The challenge that I would put is, or I think what many people misunderstand is, so data, I come from the industry as well, right? I worked in analytics and data science. Data to me is structured observation. Right? And these, I choose these words very carefully, right? So the data is not who is being observed, right? So data is Bart, a, um, you know, male, um, bought a sandwich, is friends with Mary. These are data points, right? But the data isn't you. It's kind of the recording um, or the observation of that data and kind of writing it down, right? Another way of saying is sort of imagine Sally draws a picture of Bart of you. Um, sort of you, you wouldn't say that you own the picture, right? So it's kind of it's Sally who made that picture that recorded or produced the data. Like she's the owner of the picture. So I think the debate should be you kind of give a concept. Nobody in Germany sorry? can take a picture of you and then Exactly. So the debate is not is kind of about what are the rules for consent. Is it okay if she draws a picture of you? Can she share it with someone else, right? So, um, you know, we have a notion of explicit consent that seems to me, you know, in many cases correct, but also sometimes going too far, right? So, you know, when you're out in public or when you go to a restaurant and somebody sees you, right, and tells you, hey, you know, you've, Bart has been there yesterday, which is a data point, right? <laughs> It doesn't, you don't need to explicit consent to tell your friend, hey, I've seen Bart in that restaurant yesterday, right? The single data point is not, is not the issue. It is, um, I use in my keynote some, uh, a scene where um, there was in South Korea this really weird television show uh, where they um, invite people who have lost someone in their lives and they want to meet that person again. And uh, to do that, they uh, collect as much data 
of that person that we see. So they take pictures, videos, voice recordings, and they model that data into a 3D model avatar that talks the way that, of that person that moves in that way and that looks in the same way in a, in a 3D virtual uh, a reality. And then in television, they show them how that person meets then the deceased person. And, and then there was a scene that I always show about the mother trying to grab her deceased daughter um, that she hasn't seen since that accident where she lost her daughter. And I show this to show that data is not just data, because data in that scene, and, and I show that to my audience, everybody is silent and some people start crying because it's so emotional. And then you notice that data is not just data anymore. And because this is all phenotype and not genotype data, but like they were able to reproduce human life in a virtual environment. And, and then you need to ask yourself the question, okay, we are, we are moving away from that. I'm, I, I checked in in Foursquare uh, in a restaurant to having somebody, the ability, giving somebody the ability to create a complete simulation about not only the way how you look, but the way how you speak. And, and, and if you combine it to the behavioral models that Facebook has of, of our behavior, when we interact with their platform, they will even know what we like and what we don't like and how we communicate. Uh, and and you, you kind of create a digital copy or clone about yourself based on that data. And, and, and I think we are moving because of the technology getting so powerful. We are moving towards a world where that is even possible by collecting all these data, data snippets and then creating something that is you but is not you and then you need to talk about who owns that model that is a simulation about yourself and um there is a um, a really good uh, philosopher in oxford um um uh, florido i don't know if, um, if you know or read his books but in his research he told that we are not as humans not only biological entities anymore to create our identity but we also informational identities and both of them are interlinked to create your identity so it is not you is not only your biological self anymore it is your informational self and these things are connected and i think we need to discuss if this is the case that these things are connected who can own that because if, if there is in, in our fundamental rights for example there is an article 3 written the right of integrity I'm talking about morals, that nobody can own you, like slavery is not allowed, but you are not also, you're not allowed to create a clone out of yourself, which is a, a replication about um, genetics that, that is written in our fundamental rights. And it was also written that you cannot use the body and parts of the body for economical purposes. So you're not allowed to sell your organs or your eye or your kidney, otherwise people would start selling this. So I question if this is the fundamental right in the analog world, do we need to shift that kind of thinking for the informational self to that digital world and connect both uh, fundamental rights? Yeah, here's where the lines get a bit blurry for me, right? So to stick with the Sally example, it seems what seems to me the case is 
you've get if you've given consent that she's fine to draw that picture of you, Sally owns it, right? So she has some kind of copy of you, um, a bundle of information that represents you in some way or form. Um, but what would justify you to say that you're the owner, well, not Sally? That's one like. You're not allowed even with, when you give consent for otherwise um, when you die and somebody used to, the organs, nobody can claim money because there is, there is no ownership. Like it's different. I don't claim that we own data. Huh? Um, I think we need to. Um, for me, it's the ec economics behind it that is difficult um, because if 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 you start uh, allowing people to sell that and 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 manage this and and and, and, and I think. Facebook is a really good example on how uh, we gave consent, but not on, never understood what we gave consent for. And and there is before consent, there is the word informational consent, or um, um, you, you need to be informed what the consequences are. And this is mostly not the case. Um, I just read that Meta just gave an update on their privacy policy this week. And it's so complex that you hardly understand it. And there were um, lawyers now and, and um, uh, um, uh, scholars who deep dived in the policy framework. And it's even worse than before. Because, of course, if you go into the metaverse for meta, they, they need your whole bio, biometric information to create an avatar of yourself. Uh, and, and, and Facebook want to own that, that avatar. Um, so when you go into that metaverse, you give all your data, but you don't own the replica of yourself. And I, and I find this really challenging because that means if I die, then they can create a business model. <laughs> they say, like, hey, dear fellow uh, family members of Bart, um, you want to talk to Bart? But here is the case. Like, <laughs> we own Bart. <laughs> He's not existing anymore, but he gave consent. <laughs> and I think that... These consequences are um, things what you but we don't even realize what these consequences are, uh, but it, it's definitely going to um, um, be a violation of the right to integrity, uh, which is a very important fundamental right which a lot of people don't understand anymore. I'm not sure you're violating a fundamental right of integrity. The, the, the debate for me is about consent, but just to give you an example, and feel free to challenge me. I have a. I had a very different reaction than most of my friends, uh, most people who saw the movie, The Social Dilemma, right? I found it a bit silly <laughs> to personify a Facebook as, you know, someone who sits in front of a screen. Oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. Um, because, you know, Facebook makes $100 per year per user through ads, you know, and then average Facebook engineer earns like $200,000 or $300,000, right? So they're not interested in you as a person, they're interested in you as an aggregate. So what a Facebook engineer is doing when is kind of trying to optimize ad spend, right? Sort of what makes it more likely um, that this ad is relevant for you, right? So relevant for you and makes you buy, right? I'm personally not that frightened of that, right? If I give Facebook my data, I'm not very exhibitionist. But, um, you know, I'm using Facebook. It used to be a good service. Now it isn't that, now I don't like it that much anymore. But, you know, many people like it and they give basically information about themselves to use the service for free. And in return, they see ads. So I see that kind of as a bargain that I don't see as that problematic, right? And I'm typically asking, 
you know, everyone is saying, oh, there's consequences of that. Like they can sell the data to other things. But what is the harm then? Like, what should I be afraid of? What could, how could I be harmed by that? At the very beginning of our conversation today, I said, like, I challenge information asymmetries. And, and information asymmetries, if somebody knows more, like in, in business, like Josef Stiglitz, which is an overpriced law for economics, that information asymmetries is that what allows you as a seller to uh, be able to ask a higher price towards your customer because you know more. The more you know, the better deals you can make about your against your client, and and, and it creates more value in that sense. So the, the fact that that we are um, still because I was also in that um, in that um, documentary what you call the social dilemma. There was a Tristan Harris, uh, and I talked a few times to Tristan, uh, and and he uses that quote of uh, Olson Willis, the biologics that we are humans, we are trapped in our paleolithic emotions and we are confronted with medieval institutions and we have godlike technology. And, and that is the case, like Facebook has godlike technology that um, um, allows us to really predict quite well what our, what our behavior will be. And you can then call this, yeah, we are only selling advertisements. Um, but what they also do is creating um, Direction and addiction, so you stay longer on that platform, so you see much more advertisement. So I have nothing against seeing advertisement. Um, if they're personalized, perhaps, yeah, but I want to understand why. <laughs> and that is mostly not the case because if I see really personal advertisements on Facebook, I click mostly sometimes, how the hell do they know? And then they write me, because you are based in Germany. And so, like, yeah, bullshit. Like they don't even explain you and in transparency is there. But now coming back to the attention that they kind of, because that was a huge part in that um, uh, documentary as well. What they will do is optimize their business model, use these information asymmetries to um, control you in a sense. Like you lose agency. Like I know so many people that have no control over their life anymore because they are trapped in that dopamine cycle that every time you have a like, you get, oh, there is dopamine and you, and, and if it's like drugs. <laughs> the only thing with drugs, if you take too much, you die. <laughs> uh, with Facebook, you don't die, but you get really perhaps um, uh, mentally uh, sick. And I think they are hacking kind of humans and they are hacking behavior and, and you lose agency. And I think if that serves the business model of advertising so they can um, serve their shareholders more, but it's not serving me as a human person, uh, and I don't have agency anymore because I, like humans, are not under control. Like most people are not even literate enough to understand what is actually happening. Then I think this is. A I get that. I get that addiction is a problem. I um, have two problems, or one problem first with singling out Facebook specifically, right? I mean, right now it's clearly not working on young people, right? I mean, first they're switching to Instagram, to Snap, now to TikTok. And there's also many other things that have made people addictive, right? It used to, we used to blame video games. We used to blame and can still legitimately blame TV, right? People are also very glued and addicted to their TVs, which leads to all sorts of sort of downsides when it comes to health. 
So I don't get why we're A, singling out Facebook that strongly for it, and B, what typically follows after naming what is a problem, you know, I'm not denying that it's a problem, is typically, okay, we need to protect the consumer by passing all these regulations specifically against Facebook. And I think that's a mistake for reasons that we can talk about, but well, I want you to react I, first. I, I, like it's not Facebook, but Facebook was a, like Cheryl, um, um, who just left the company, was the, the, the person, she's not leaving actually, she stays on the board. But um, Sherman Sandberg was the one that really drove the, the, the business model so to, to optimize it. And like, for example, I'm a person that watches, um, let's not take Google, I watch quite a lot of MIT lectures and highly intellectual things on YouTube. Still, when I look at what I get suggested on my algorithm, Sometimes I see suggestions about a guy who takes 10 minutes to put something in a bottle and creates that video in such a way that you keep on looking at it. And I'm, I'm not perfect in that sense. I start watching, say, what's that idiot doing? And so six minutes later, I realize that I'm still watching an idiot somewhere on the planet who created a video. So he gets more advertisements on his platform and more minutes so he can serve that. Is that really... <laughs> Helping me? No. Like, am I on the control? Well, at the beginning, not because I, I see that I click on it. Now, I question why I see that video. Face, like Google knows or YouTube knows that I watch ninety percent of my time. I watch um, or eighty percent of my time. I watch lectures and and talks and information that I consume. And ninety um, percent <laughs> um, of the others, I watch kite surfing and snowboard movies. And then one percent I fell in that trap. Still, that is being suggested quite a lot to me. And I said, like, why the hell do I get that information? That is not serving me. But they do this because they know that we have weaknesses. And and that's the thing. What, what, what that biologist said, like, we are trapped in paleolithic emotions. Like we are still we still have the same tool set as. As thousands of years ago, when there was even not even television, or hundred thousands of years ago, like it's not that we completely changed our biology, and we are being hacked, like hacked in dimensions that we have never seen before. Uh, our voting behavior it hacks the way how we think about things, and and like for example, I give you another challenge on on, on news feeds, the things that you want to see, like that, that was for me now the. YouTube feed, but with the news feed, that is quite dangerous that you know how you can hack someone to see, uh, to let him see things that perhaps change his behavior, and you have no insights, not at all, why this is being presented. Like, I don't get insights in the data they have of me, I don't get insights in the things because, yes, they want to keep these information asymmetries. Well, when I hear this, and I agree that there are, you know, people have addictive behavior, um, I'm thinking like humans are flawed, right? So we used to do the same thing or still do many parts of the population with TV, right? It would be better if they would read books instead or meditate or, you know, engage in a conversation. But so what? People are flawed. So what are we doing about this, right? I mean, you can switch... Uh, Personally, you can make the decision to switch to better alternatives, educate people what, what, what they can do. But I'm kind of trying to get it is what's typically followed is um, a cure that's sometimes worse than the disease. And I'm thinking specifically 
about um, EU regulation. So to shift a bit to that topic, I'm not sure, but feel free to point out the benefits to me that GDPR is really helping us improve when it comes to that or the Digital Service Act. What's what's your opinion on that? What's good and bad about GDPR, the European Data Protection Law, and about the Digital Service Act of the EU that's been recently passed? Do they address the problem in your view? Um, yeah, if not, um, why? And if yes, why? Thank you for asking. Like GDPR came for me 15 years too late because I was always a privacy advocate before. Um, I think people don't know the history why privacy is really important. Without privacy, you don't have democracy. Um, we we live now in well-quite democratic countries, so we take that for granted. Um, but in other countries, privacy is, is really an issue. If you are gay and, and you lived in Russia before or, or have op 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 opponentic, uh, op opposing views to, uh, to a government, um, um, that is quite important in that sense. And um, I think a lot of people forgot that. Like there is a, a, an example what you can take why it's important. Like when uh, the Nazi Germany um, uh, came into Holland um, and uh, they conquered Holland, the one of the first things they did is went to the uh, offices where there are census databases, where there was a register and it used to be like punts cards, like um, there was Hollerit, which was a company that IBM bought, a German company. And they had uh, databases where there was written in, uh, of all the people where they lived uh, what the, which year they were born, which sex, but also which religion they had. So in Holland, they had instantly access to the whole addresses of all people's families where they lived. And in France, they, before the Nazis uh, conquered um, uh, the north of France, um, a lot of people destroyed these databases. And the difference is that in Holland, three times as much people, Jewish people, when deported, and died because there was somebody who used that power and and to kill people. Now it's, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing. This is actually very serious. But this is um, in France the, the opposite. The case people destroyed it, and I think we need to think that the history will always repeat itself. It's very naive to think that well everything is fine and we can share this and we can allow these companies to have and collect that kind of information about us now. We don't need today. We don't need a, a register where it is written uh, what kind of sexual orientation I ha have. That Facebook knows that. Yeah, Facebook uh, can um, have you typically boxed into these things and quite accurately. They know if you are depressive or not because every time if you go in the night, opening up every second hour your app and you start um, doing things and you don't sleep, they know these kind of things. So they they know hundred times more as the, at that time in, in Nazi Germany. And I think that that is quite problematic. This is, this is, this is not about advertisements anymore. This is about having an extremely a lot of power uh, to understand even trends and uh, things. It's not about perhaps my information, but about information about everybody together um, and, and, and being able to abuse that kind of information to uh, abuse your power um, and and to have an, an advantage like knowledge is power and if you can look at societal trends and understand it better um, these kind of things in an intransparent way I think are quite problematic and what what happened now in uh, and I call it if you combine this with their sort of rules that they start defining of 
what you can talk about, um, uh, what is allowed, um, uh, that, that starts to become quite problematic. Like I found it extremely problematic when Facebook decided suddenly in Poland that hate speech against Russia was suddenly allowed. You could write, let's kill all Russians. It was suddenly allowed because somebody in the US pulled a switch about what you can say in Poland. <laughs> so if you don't think that is problematic, I think we need to really re-educate our people. Yeah, that's not at all what I'm saying. Right. What I'm saying is not that these things aren't problematic and there aren't these risks of abusing, um, having access to your data. I'm just saying, or it seems to me that um, the cure is not the right one. Right. So um, what I think is very typical in regulatory history, and I posted about this on LinkedIn, is, um, you know, you can't make rules just for Facebook or for Google. Right. You have to make rules for everyone. And it's easier for Facebook and Google to follow these rules. So what they're doing is kind of fending off their competition. So we're kind of undermining other ways to create solutions for these problems by sort of imposing um, regulations like GDPR and DSI. DSI. I, I don't think there was a huge claim. There was Max Kems, who is a lawyer in, um, uh, in, in Austria, who uh, sued Facebook and he won that case. So... Um, Facebook violates GDPR. Like they, they managed that there was, you can Google that up. Like Facebook is not compliant with GDPR. They managed to get in that constant final loophole. And that's what, what I agree with. Like they have tons of armies of lawyers and legal advisors and, and can find loopholes which smaller companies can't do. Like, so, um, but even now with the new market service act that is, um, um not, not in, in action yet, because it needs to be signed by the end of the year, and it will take two years or uh, until it comes into local legislations. But um, I found it really problematic that they said, like, only companies with 100 million users and over uh, uh, so much billion or revenues have to adopt to that market service. It's like completely nonsense. Like, all you have strict rules where you can blame and you keep that framework, um, and, but you're not going to exclude based on the size and point fingers at Facebook and Google. I, I don't think that makes sense um, like to, to, to focus on these companies. Um, but I think what I do like about these regulations is that they defend uh, values and, uh, and, and, and rights. And I think, um, I don't think, um, I, think, I think it would be very naive that without regulations, um, these rights would be defended. Like, when, when Google and, and Facebook started, I think Zuckerberg was very loud on uh, calling privacy something that is dead. Like he was openly uh, telling that privacy was dead. And um, I don't, and, and that was a free unregulated market during the time. And, and still he was like, yeah, we need to share. Like it's all about sharing. He created the narrative that people believe that they are such a good company that it will all make the world better and we start sharing. What they didn't say is that they didn't share, like that they collect, but they don't share and start building information asymmetries to use it against our weaknesses. And, and that is a bad deal that we made. Um, it's the same thing that I had a bad deal with when I first, and that's why I'm so active on this. I, I was part of the Quantified Self movement in 2009 Gary Webb um, was the initiator in Silicon Valley, and then 
at the beginning, we started collecting data about ourselves using Excel sheets um, uh, to do so. And, 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 and we had meetups to share what we were collecting. And we had full agency because we, we owned our own data. And there were really weird projects. Like there was a guy who collected uh, three times a day how he felt. And then he made a list of all the people he was in communication with uh, during that day. He tracked it for a whole year. And then he correlated which people had a really bad influence in his mood. And then he canceled friendship <laughs> with these people and then tracked him for another year. And then he said, like, hey, I'm feeling 30% better. Um, and that was at the beginning of Quantified Cells. So there was a lot of things you can learn out of data. But then these companies and startups came that start applying these um, methods and wearables, tracking each other. You can even track if you're masturbating or not. No, we don't see that in our app, but you based on the sensor data, you can do that. And um, what happened actually is that I had the first tool that I used was Zio, which was a startup, I think it was founded in 2010, that I had to wear this thing wearable about my head that was tracking my sleep. Um, and then I, I was every day, single day, giving information to that company. And then they went bankrupt. And that was the moment I asked question, what, what is actually happening to my data when they go bankrupt? And then I read this in the terms and conditions that the assets uh, that they have, which is the data that is protected by the IP database, are being sold to 50 different data brokers. So my sleep, where I was sleeping, how long I slept and everything else was sold to data brokers. That's, Facebook did the same thing. They started selling data, sharing data. There was no control anymore about who you sell that to. And I don't think that I signed up for that when I... Um, was tracking my sleep. Yeah, I still signed up because I didn't read and understood uh, the whole privacy terms, but um, they abused that in that sense just for the investors to create as much value as possible. And I, I think that is not informed consent. That is trying to um, create power asymmetries between users and the companies, and it's, it, it is not beneficial. And then I had the same thing with 23andMe, I, I was so naive, I used all these things at the beginning. And, and every time my trust, uh, trusted relationship got broken because they changed the business model from me being the customer to me becoming the product. And I had huge issues with that. Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that I'm against regulation. I'm not. Like, especially, you know, good regulation against uh, uh, when it comes to explicit consent, when it comes to liability for damages, all these things are very important. My issue is more with um, how the incentives, how these regulations come about, right? So I think good regulation is much harder to get than bad regulation. And the reason is simply that there's little competition, right? So, you know, we just have to accept the regulations that you legislators come up with, right? So there's very little competition. You know, I can go somewhere else if I don't like it because Europe is a very big country. So these rules apply everywhere and very few people are willing to move for that reason, right? So I'd like to see is a bit of a more open and more permissive regulatory environment where people kind of voluntarily say, hey, I'm adopting this regulation, right? If this, um, you know, I adopt the Hippocratic Oath, I stand by Creative Commons, I stand by, you know, this kind of agreement. And then we have kind of a reputation market that, makes us select for the companies we trust. You know, if we know this company is adopting these regulations, Facebook is kind of going 
um, sort of voluntarily with these very strict standards, then people can opt in or opt out depending on whether or not that makes them trust Facebook more or less. Any reaction on that? I, I don't agree with all the regulations that are, like I think the regulatory framework gives an opportunity, but it was, as always, um, it's a compromise and um, compromises are never good. Um, it was definitely lobbied by Big Tech. Um, my, my aim was to say like, okay, let's, I don't know if you, you know the concept of core and complements, which was um, an economical concept on why open source was created, that you, uh, by open sourcing a complement and a complement, for example, if I'm a restaurant, my complement would be the ingredients that I need to create food or dishes. Uh, so it's not my core business, but I need it to be able to uh, do what my core business model is. Like if I, I'm a car producer, my complement is oil. Um, and that's what open source um, creators did. So like, if I can uh, commodify or create a common good out of my complement, um, then I will be able to sell more in my core. Um, because if you lower the price of your complement, uh, customers will be able to expense more on the core. Um, and so that, that means that a thought exercise, imagine you could... Mm -hmm create a law that all 3D printed food needs to be open source, you probably solve hunger and uh, these, you will see more restaurants later because the price of food will go completely down, uh, as an example. Um, and, 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 and you will create more competition, you will create more market, you will create more uh, growth and, and all these things. Now, I thought like with AI and data, what is the core business model of, of these big tech platforms? If you now equal data to capital, which is the case, data is commodified, um, then you allow um, um, uh, data accumulations to follow capital concentration. Now, I'm not an anti-capitalist, but I do have a problem when um, capital concentrates and that concentration is used for power, and then through merging and acquisitions, you consolidate uh, data, like Fitbit was bought by Google, um, um, Roche bought flat iron for 2.1 billion. So the more money you have, the more you can start building and buying these companies and you consolidate. That, that means that um, you have so much data that you always will get a, an advancement, um, a, a, a USP out of that because you can create better algorithms, you can train uh, better solutions in that case. And that means that this is this is not fitting to the European model because we have 27 markets, we have GDPR, we are slower, and, and it doesn't make sense um, to allow a company that first builds his products in the US to enter the market uh, and allow it to play their USP, which they do, because they have really great products coming to a market, uh, and uh, we cannot grow and scale these companies in such a sense, because each market has different rules. Even though that, so that's why we need the European legislation, but it's still um, the, the, the role of the country to implement that legislation. So my, my advice was to, if we, if AI and data is, is, is the USP, the core of Google and Facebook and others, why don't we make it a complement in Europe? So why don't we create data commons and AI commons and, and, and make it a common good? So our European companies can start concentrating and make their core something different, which perhaps creates much better user experiences because you suddenly don't have to expend that much on the data collection because it's shared R&D. 
and then you move up in a value uh, in the value chain, and you're going to focus on. I really create amazing brands, uh, amazing experiences, um, something that is higher, perhaps upscale in, in the experience as the others, because you have less cost. And, and that would have been a really nice regulation if Europe would have the guts to say, like, hey, for example, in healthcare, um, AI needs to be always open source, um, and, and data needs to be shared as a data solidarity concept. And that would have been bold. Because that would create so much opportunity for startups and others to play in, um, and it would have attacked the core business model of these larger companies. But um, I tried to um, uh, push for this in, in an agenda, and I did quite a lot of work uh, to let people explain this. But um, then there was uh, politics involved. It's like, no, we need a transatlantic market so we can create this um, uh, large market so we can compete against China and, and you get all these kind of uh, nonsense political discussions. It is a fascinating discussion. There were many things that you said that I would like to double click on. Um, but in the interest of time, there's one more topic I'd like to cover, which is AI in healthcare. Can you say what is the overconfidence problem well, in healthcare? Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the biases that is out there. Um, uh, overconfidence is uh, when um, physicians um, are really, really, really sure about the decision, like if you would ask them, like there are papers being done that where they ask physicians, are sure are you about the diagnosis you made? Um, and um, then uh, of the patients that died afterwards, they did a biopsy and they found out the, what we call the ground truth to say, like, why did he really die? That um, those who were extremely sure about their decision where the most who were wrong. So, so um, that, that is a bias, like overconfidence is, is one of the many biases we have when we take decisions. And um, there is, I, I, there is a, if you want to, if people are interested, I, I can advise to read in the work of Daniel Kahneman to understand uh, how humans take decisions. Um, and I think what Kahneman in a, as a simplification um, it's not a, a quite correct model, but it helps to understand is that 80% um, um, of the decisions physicians make are, are based on intuition, and intuition is nothing else as pattern recognition. So they, are, they don't even think analytically. They see specific markers and characteristics, and then they take a decision based on that. And that is a very fast, um, intuitive uh, decision process in our brain, and these, these kind of processes are very prone on... on being influenced by bias. So that means if you are an, another bias, if it's fatigue bias, if you are on Monday morning and you went partying the weekend, you, your decision quality in an intuitive way will be will be worse. If you are emotional because you are the breakup, you, you will get take the different decisions. So that's why you see fluctuations in decision making uh, in healthcare. Um, I probably will do better, but then we need data and the data that we have today has that bias in there. So, so it's really hard to get data that has ground truth, uh, that is really so objective that you don't replicate that bias in your AI systems, which is something what is happening, unfortunately, today. But to give a side comment on AI, I think we need to shift away from that typical um, AI discussion in healthcare where we go for radiology and then have AI for checking your 
skin or skin cancer, um, because that's kind of a bit like the um, uh, the myth of the five blinds and the elephant. I don't know if you know that that one. Um, so if you put five blind people to an elephant and one takes the the foot, um, it's just like it's it's a tree. The one who, uh, who takes the tail says it's a rope. The one who stands on the side says it's a wall, but nobody says it's an elephant. Now you can translate this into healthcare and say like. The one on the foot is the orthopedic surgeon. The one on the tail is perhaps the urologist. And the one on the side is the dermatologist. And each of them is going to give you a different diagnosis. But nobody is going to tell that you are an elephant. But, so we need to understand biology. And that's where the future of healthcare is. And where AI is really going to get great in is really understanding our body as a system. And, 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 and I think the biggest promise is um, is looking at medicine as applied biology and then um, creating a lot of data in genetics and, and multi-omics, like not only um, genomics, but like transcriptomics. And um, like there are very different layers in, in, in how our body functions and then analyzing that. And the more compute power we have, the better we will be able to understand how we can influence our biology and and mRNA was the very beginning of this, but mRNA is a bit like a sending an SMS into your body and then giving instructions or telling your body what to do. And I think we're on a very early stage of this to understand this. Uh, and we can start using diagnosis. And perhaps at the end, we can look at our body as a, as a computer that works on bits and bytes, and we will create a computer programming language that allows us to program what our biology needs to do in order to be able to live longer, to be disease-free or whatever. And, and I think that, that shift to, towards uh, looking at medicine as applied biology is going to come uh, by the application of AI in a very fast way. There's lots of opportunity for AI to improve over human doctors. I highly recommend Bart's TED Talk, where he's also showing um, how pigeons... <laughs> can be better to well, make better diagnosis than humans. <laughs> I'll leave a link in the show notes. About, uh, um, AI is going to take our jobs away. They were like uh, uh, people like Darth Brecht, like um, all <laughs> of nonsense. Um, and, and Brecht said like, oh, he uses this Oxford paper that is uh, 14 years old. It's like 50% of the jobs are going to disappear. I think that doesn't really help the discussion because um, I found this paper that pigeons were as good as pathologists to diagnose breast cancer from pathology imaging, and nobody thought that these pigeons <laughs> were taking our jobs away. So um, it doesn't make any sense to create these kind of fears. But that's journalism. Also, my former CTO um, once had a brilliant line. He was said, oh, people are worried that machines are taking the job from humans. But why do we let humans take the jobs of machines? <laughs> You know, it's good that some jobs are done yeah, by so machines. What we need to discuss is like, <laughs> there is going to be a level of automation. Um, and, and what is the, again, when we talked at the beginning today, what is the narrative of our, of our future? And there are people that come with this uh, uh, very idealistic view of creating a commercial based income. Uh, and, and I oppose this view because it's like, it doesn't make any sense to talk about UBI as a solution for um, uh, automation unless you're going to redistribute wealth, which will never happen. <laughs> Nobody's going to redistribute wealth unless we get a French Revolution that uh, introduces the guillotine again, so we chop off the heads of the rich and then we redistribute wealth. It's not going to happen. So I think, what is it that we can create? So 
people get more free services. So, and I think comments are something that need to be developed further, like digital comments. And my aim is really to see the EPOI Foundation, I see this as a multi-generation uh, foundation. And is, can we build things that are for free, digital, and that allows us to get healthcare for free because it's all open source in that sense. Like Wikipedia is open source, so other things that we use are open source. And we are not trapped into the business model that led to Facebook us stealing our time because they had to serve their business model. Can we not use these technologies to create things that serve us, humanity, and serve our children instead of always thinking in these opportunities that are creating extreme power asymmetries at the moment? Exactly. What many people don't realize is what exciting business models you create through open source, right? So again, it's sort of that flawed image of, you know, you need to own an idea to be able to monetize it. Like nothing could be further from the truth. There's hundreds of different of way, hundreds of different ways to make your idea, your thoughts, your AI models, or the data that you collected available for others to build on it and also monetize yourself. Can you, so you as a foundation, you provide breast cancer data that's openly available um, to the hackers, data scientists, innovators, and um, founders in my audience. Where else can they look for good data sets um, to use for their modeling or good AI models to build on and replicate? What are kind of the main sort of honeypots for the open source move movement? Well, where you can GitHub, but GitHub is a problem that there was a lot of data sets on GitHub, but um, GitHub is a problem that you cannot find them um, uh, because the GitHub is used as a data storage, but this is the clinical information. Um, there is a search engine from Google um, that is... Um, where you can look for data sets. Um, um, so it's data.google or something. You, you will find it, open data, um, 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 and then you find it's a search engine for data sets. There is a new kind of similar project as mine in the US, but as always in the US, you find more philanthropic money. So they are one step ahead of me. Um, it's the uh, Nightingale um, uh, Open Science uh, Foundation that um, is starting to publish as well uh, large open data sets for AI modeling. Um, you have to write them. It's, it's gatekept um, in a sense because of um, the uh, identification and the identification issue, but as well as they only allow nonprofits um, in that sense at the moment to, to access that data uh, for nonprofit research. Like, I think they want to avoid Google accessing the data as well. Um, um, another thing what is a great resource is uh, papers with code. Uh, papers with code has um, quite a lot of uh, data sets, and on the papers with code, you can search for data sets. And that's a good trend to see that coming up uh, because mostly the Elseviers and Springers and papers don't uh, always uh, publish for code, uh, their code and the data. Kaggle, but like Kaggle, everybody knows there is uh, some data sets in there as well. Um, Kaggle is this competitive competition platform from uh, data scientists uh, where there are data sets uh, available. And they are kind of scattered um, in a sense. I've been looking in, uh, can we not create a, a, a more uh, a search engine? So that that's what uh, one of the things we have been looking into. So if people would be interested in joining such a mission, they, can, they could reach out to see, like, uh, can we not make it even more findable? Because there is quite a lot of things out there, but they're not really well 
um, um, searchable. Uh, there was hugging face, but hugging face is um, not so healthcare specific. Fantastic. How can people well, best um, reach out they to you? can go at Bart at hippoi.org, go on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm quite visible online. So Bart to Witter um, or uh, hippoi.org. Fantastic. I really loved our discussion. I um, could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> but in the interest of time, just to remind our audience, there's going to be a conference where we, where we talk about the future of healthcare and we're inviting entrepreneurs, innovators, and investors to come to the conference. Um, it's a beautiful Caribbean island, September 23 to 25. Go to infinitafund.com and go on the events page to sign up. Bart, thank you so much for this amazing conversation and thank everyone else for listening. Goodbye. Thank and you so see much. You thank you. Time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. That's got great.